This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotny. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number 505 and we welcome the restoration lawyer, Ed Cross. Please visit our Facebook and YouTube pages and leave a comment. A like or a subscribe. You can also sign up for the weekly show announcement at iaqradio.com and download podcast through Podbean or iTunes. And we have continuing education credits available for IICRC, ACAC. Email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at healthyindoors.com. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers. Feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. And our newest sponsors are RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org and AEML Laboratories. Free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations to Thomas Wesley Barnes III. ECS Southwest LLP in Greenville, South Carolina, for the first correct answer to last week's IQ Radio trivia question. He correctly identified Albert Camus as the philosopher, author, and journalist who said, I rebel, therefore I exist. The IQ Radio question for today, Friday, May 25, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's question. What is the legal term for a voluntary statement made under oath? Back to you, Joe. We have Ed Cross today, full-time restoration lawyer and part-time drummer. Uh, <laughs> we rarely get to play some, you know, live or some uh, original music from the guests. So that was that was a little clip from Ed. Uh, we'll put that up on the on the blog. Ed's the restoration lawyer. He's built a successful law practice that specially caters to the needs of insurance damage repair contractors and remediators. He's got a bachelor's degree in speech communications with an emphasis on public speaking from Cal State. 
and uh, his Juris Doctor degree was from Western State University in Fullerton, California. He is well known for his risk management advice, cleaning and restoration contracts, and related forms available for free and for purchase on his website, edcross.com. Welcome, Ed. Great to have you back. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. You guys are getting better all the time. I love the addition of the uh, the video, getting high tech, right, Cliff? There it is, man. High tech for a low tech kind of guy. <laughs> That's why we have John and, and Joe has the studio and I just need to click on and I'm here. So, John does yeah. an outstanding job, by the he way. Does, he does. John's our guy, man. That's John, you got to have faith. All right, Ed, let's get a start on some uh, restoration legal issues. Why don't we start with any current legal trends, um, recent case law that came out, anything that uh, our listeners might be interested in learning more about on the restoration side of things? Yeah, well, um, I find that owners are uh, looking for more and more creative ways to try to prosecute their grievances against contractors. And one of the big trends uh, that we've seen really accelerate here in California, particularly in the last year or so, is complaints against contractors' licenses. And one of the reasons owners really like to do this is that the state will prosecute these claims for free to the consumer. The California State Contractors License Board identifies itself as a consumer protection agency. It is essentially in the, jo- in, the, in the business of prosecuting contractors. The name Contractors State License Board is really kind of a misnomer because it is not the contractors board, it's the anti-contractors board. And hmm. what they do is very aggressive and in a complaint against a license, you don't have the same types of rights to defend yourself that you would have in civil court where you've got uh, a jury of your peers or you have a judge who's being objective, who's going to listen to both sides of it. It doesn't work that way. You have an investigator who is in the business of prosecuting you who will bring out an expert to come out and do an inspection and with these inspections, they really get very, very aggressive with these. Um, an example, there was an insurance claim regarding a piece of marble floor tile uh, that had a red wine spill on it. It was stained, and they couldn't find uh, a replacement tile for it. They couldn't find, you know, it had been discontinued. They couldn't find it. And so the investigator uh, for the state um, you know, found uh, that the uh, the whole floor should be removed. And in the process of uh, removing the floor, he figured we've got to take out the baseboards. And since the tile extended underneath the cabinets, we need to rip out all of the cabinets in the entire house. And if you're going to do that, you're probably going to damage the paint. So we need to repaint the entire interior. Next thing you know, we're basically remodeling almost all of the interior uh, finishes of a property merely because one tile got stained. And Hmm. investigators take the reports and estimates of these, uh, these experts as the holy gospel. That becomes the law. That becomes the penalty that gets imposed. And unless the contractor uh, pursues an appeal 
against that. That stands, and the contractor is ordered to pay this cost of repair, which we think in many instances is really, uh, really overkill and really overblown. Nothing gets a contractor's attention as well as some sort of administrative action that potentially could put the contractor out of business. I had one I recently defended uh, where there were some floor tiles uh, that had come loose and the investigator, the expert found uh, it would be uh, like sixty-five dollars or $75,000 to do all of the associated repairs. And because it was over $50,000, the license board decided that the, the proper remedy would be to revoke the guy's license, to prohibit him from ever being involved, uh, from uh, being with a, a licensed contractor as an RMO or uh, an officer, basically putting the guy out of business. And it was really, uh, it was really too aggressive and heavy-handed because he had been in business for 25 years without any complaints, without any lawsuits. He had hundreds of satisfied customers. He had one uh, set of floor tiles come loose and they wanted to put him out of business. Well, we appealed that and got into some negotiations and after a lot of wrangling, uh, managed to successfully negotiate a settlement that allowed him to stay in business. And for most of that uh, effort there, the homeowner didn't have to incur any attorney's fees. So Who does the appeal go to? The appeal goes to an administrative law judge. And um, fortunately, we've been able to uh, keep um, these matters from getting to that level. There are ways that they can be settled. And um, once there is um, an accusation filed, which is the document that's filed to suspend or revoke someone's license, the matter then goes to the attorney general's office. And we hope that the attorney general's office will take a fresh uh, look at it, but the, the license board is essentially the client of the attorney general, and if the license board wants some particular result, uh, I don't think the attorney general's office can overrule that, uh, but we end up uh, negotiating with the, the attorney general's office, but you know, it, it, it lacks due process. The attorney general's office gets to set the hearing date, okay, and there's no other area of law uh, that I know of where an advocate for one side gets to control the procedure of the matter. And it's really unfair and these uh, laws need to be revisited. And this is California specific, correct? Yeah, that's my uh, experience that I'm referring to and um, the other consumer friendly states as well, I imagine uh, have similar types of issues going there. Now you, you, um, I know you do contracts at least for Florida and for, for other states as well. Do right. you, what, is Florida a consumer-friendly state, or is it a? Uh, uh, are you familiar with that? You know, um, if you look at the the fact that attorneys' fees can be shifted in an action arising from an assignment of benefits, in uh, in that aspect, uh, I think it is kind of a uh, a consumer-friendly uh, state. We don't have a statute like that here, uh, and I wish we did. Hmm. Are, Are are the contractors in California doing anything in order to 
to fight this? Or are they organizing? Is this something that's new or something that's been going on? For a no, while? it's not something that's new. Uh, a couple of years ago, I tried to encourage the California contractors to get organized and accumulate some funds to hire a lobbyist. And uh, some of the bigger ones uh, stepped up, but there simply weren't enough numbers of people willing to uh, make a commitment uh, to that effort. It's not an enormous amount of money, uh, but, um, you know, as we've learned from past experiences, uh, it's difficult to get this industry uh, organized in a way so that uh, financial resources can be pooled in some sort of joint uh, legal effort, unlike industries such as the auto repair industry, which uh, successfully fought back against uh, the insurance companies and, you know, the standardized pricing and all of that. And they actually uh, won some cases and, and made some progress with that. And frankly, I don't understand why the restoration industry uh, remains disjointed. And you guys might be able to answer that question better than I could. But who would they be fighting? I mean, you know, if it's a government thing, I don't know that you can fight the government. You know, typically lobbyists are you know, trying to prevent the law, uh, you know, from going in. They're not necessarily right. trying to change yeah. the government. Yeah, so basically you get a lobbyist on board uh, who has some relationships in Congress and knows which representatives and Congress people would be most open to that type of legislation and you get that representative to sponsor the legislation and uh, try to bring it to the floor for a vote. And that's how law gets made. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's an interesting um, area. So in California, if you're a restoration contractor, you have to be licensed as a, renovation contractor or how does that work and and is it similar i mean i mean around the country i know there's going to be different rules in different states but um generally speaking don't restoration contractors have to register as a home improvement contractor or something along those lines yes in california if you're going to be doing demolition or removal of drywall baseboards cabinetry that sort of thing uh, you need to have a contractor's license. Most of them uh, have a B license, which is essentially uh, a general contractor's license. We also have a specialty license here for asbestos abatement. And the law about what you can do under a general contractor's license is worded in kind of a confusing way. And I get calls fairly often from people asking if they can do asbestos abatement in California under a general contractor's license. And the answer is yes, or you can do it under uh, an asbestos abatement license. We have a lot of specialty uh, subclassifications here, but the B license is the right one in California. You don't need it if you're just doing extraction, cleaning, uh, dehumidification. But if you're altering, if you're cutting and removing, like taking out cabinets, for example, uh, for more than $500, you need a contractor's license for that. I see. Um, let's, I want to move on to another topic here, which is who is the, who is the client or who is the customer for a restoration contractor? I mean, I, I think I know the answer, but you know, then you get a lot of times our, our restoration 
listeners kind of get put in the middle of difficult situations. Ultimately, who is their customer? This is a discussion that has been raging on in this industry uh, for many, many years now. And uh, there are some uh, good arguments that people make about it. But uh, at the end of the day, from my perspective as a lawyer, the, the customer, uh, as uh, identified in the contract, is the person who is ultimately responsible for making payment of any amount not covered by the insurance company. That's not to say that the relationship with the adjuster or the insurance company is unimportant. It's extremely important. They're a vital stakeholder on many of these losses and they need to be respected as such. Okay, but at the end of the day, the legal duty goes to the customer, which is typically the building owner. Sometimes uh, it's a tenant, uh, but a number of restoration contractors get themselves in trouble because they fail to properly identify the the customer. They fail to get the contract with the right person or a property manager will sign the contract or a house sitter or a neighbor or a family member will sign it. And um, they get involved in some pretty expensive litigation later on trying to figure out which party actually owes uh, the legal duty to the contractor for payment. And even though there's an expectation on the part of the owner and the contractor that the money will come from the insurance company, nonetheless, the the customer is the person who signs the contract for the actual work, not a preferred vendor contract, uh, but to do the work, which is typically going to be the, uh, the owner or the occupant of that structure. Okay, let me get another um, kind of set the table question here. And then I want to go into the, the TPA issue uh, a little bit more in a moment, but before we do how restoration companies, they, they obviously need to make a fair profit, but what is a fair profit legally speaking? Ed? Yeah. Well, you know, there isn't really any uh, law on that per se, Joe. And, you know, a lot of times uh, adjusters or customers, they want to talk about uh, the percentage of profit uh, that a contractor is charging on a particular job. And I feel very strongly that in the vast uh, majority of cases, the actual percentage is not relevant at all. I mean, let's think about it. The percentage of profit on a job depends on the individual efficiency and buying power of the contractor. I represent restorers of all shapes and sizes from the small mom and pops up to the, the very biggest names uh, in the industry. And if a company works hard, provides good service, has a lot of satisfied customers and is able to grow to a point where they amass more buying power and can purchase materials and subcontract services at a lower price, their margin is going to go up and they're absolutely entitled to that larger margin. Okay. The, the, the easier way to avoid this problem is to use a, a fixed price lump sum contract wherever possible. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily change the obligation of the insurance company to pay a higher price, but it does give the contractor legal rights to uh, prosecute and uh, collect that particular dollar amount. I know that that has been an area that Cliff 
has um, commented on quite a bit, the, the fixed price lump sum uh, price. And I, I think sometimes that uh, people feel like they're kind of stuck with uh, using a uh, insurance company's program for determining the pricing and and it sounds to me like you're saying no that's not necessarily the case but you know what i guess they would then maybe argue back that well that's you know i got to try and keep my relationship with the insurance companies too because you know as you said earlier yeah my customer is the person that signed the contract but ultimately you know i still have to have a good reputation with the insurance industry how do you suggest contractors approach that kind of difficult issue, you know, lump sum, uh, fixed price versus going with a program? Yeah, you know, as a communications major, uh, for me, so much of it goes back to good communications and, and disclosure. And if all of the different stakeholders can decide on a price and agree up front as to how the job is going to get charged, I think that really solves, you know, 85 or 90 percent of the problems. Most of the collection issues that I deal with are ones where uh, contractors send out a bill that causes sticker shock. And, you know, if they don't like um, the preferred vendor pricing program, go ahead and address that upfront when you're signing up for the program. And then when they come back later and try to chisel down the prices, uh, that's something, you know, that you can, you can, relate back to you can reference uh, the original agreement and um, I'm afraid that some contractors are so eager to increase their volume uh, that they get overcommitted and they'll agree to things uh, that they can't really perform economically that that doesn't work out for them so you know I think uh, good candid communications up front are really helpful and a lot of project managers And estimators, you know, they're trying to close deals. I understand that completely. They want to sign up jobs, and a lot of them are on uh, commissions, and they don't want to talk about money. But you know what? We need to be ruthless right up front. We need to talk about the dollars. This is what the price is, because if we're not going to get paid, and there's going to be a problem, or there's going to be sticker shock later on, we're better off just not taking the job. Okay. Interesting. Cliff, do you have any follow-up on that? I think one of the big mistakes that um, contractors make, particularly in the area of drawing, is they don't necessarily look at economies of scale. And I think that's one of the reasons why they run into to sticker shock. You know, an air mover may cost $250. They're renting it for $25 a day. It happens to be on this particular job for 30 days. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of sticker shock there because the, the client could buy three of them for the price they're paying to rent one. So I think in certain situations, uh, economies of scale need to be, uh, you know, they'll need to be discussed. Uh, I, I reviewed it. I was a consultant on a, on a project and, and reviewed it, and they had a bill for deodorization. And the bill for deodorizing this building was in excess of $100,000. And they had three people there doing it for eight hours. Hmm. And what was crazy is they were using Xactimate pricing because Xactimate said it was half a cent a cubic foot or whatever. You know, the price for residential, they didn't have a commercial rate. 
And uh, I think they ended up collecting it, which in, in my opinion was uh, a little much, uh, you know, for three hours and a, you know, a little bit of equipment and chemical. But, you know, uh, but back to this point about a customer saying, well, we could have gone ahead and purchased the equipment. Fine. Go ahead and purchase the equipment. If you're going to hire a professional restoration company who has been trained, who has sent out technicians to get uh, IICRC certified, and they're going to pay uh, the insurance, and they're going to be subjected to all of the different risks that are involved in uh, performing one of these jobs, and they're going to learn psychrometrics, and they're going to adjust the equipment, and they're going to monitor it. You're entitled to get paid for that. And, and it goes back to the point I made before. You come up with the price ahead of time. You say, okay, we're going to charge $25 a day for this particular piece of equipment. They're not compelled to agree to that, okay? They could say, no, we're going to go buy our own, or we don't want to do it, or we'll just let the building dry naturally, or whatever they want to do. Uh, but, but I push really hard uh, against these arguments. Well, we could have just gone ahead and bought it. Fine, go ahead and buy one. If you you hire us to do it, you got to pay for it. Okay. And another topic I want to put out here before halftime. Let's see, it's eleven twenty. We got four minutes to halftime. Um, is the assignment of benefits, and um, you know that's that's been a huge issue, especially for our Florida. Uh, restoration people, um, uh, direction to pay clauses. Is is this something that's specific to Florida? Um, maybe will it be coming to other states? Uh, is, is this something that you're dealing with? And how do you suggest contractors, um, you know, what they do with this? Yeah. Um, well, uh, the only state that I know of offhand that has the attorney fee shifting provision is in Florida. It may be in other states. But um, in most states, um, a policyholder can assign uh, the rights to insurance policy benefits over to a contractor. And this is very different from a direction of pay. A lot of times contractors will contact me and they'll say uh, that they have an assignment of benefits in their contract. And what I see is something that says the insurance company is instructed to send the check to the contractor. Okay. That's not an assignment of benefits. That's merely an instruction as to how to make out the check. Okay. An assignment of benefits is a legal provision that transfers the legal right and title to insurance policy benefits over to the contractor. And if it's drafted properly, it's going to be irrevocable. What that does is allows the uh, contractor in most states, probably not Texas, for example, but in most other states, to uh, prosecute a claim directly against the insurance company. In other words, the holder of the assignment, who is the contractor, steps into the shoes of the insured. And I have continued to uh, update and modify my assignment of benefits, and now I have a supercharged assignment of benefits clause, uh, which includes an instruction in there that says that the insurance company is authorized uh, to release all information regarding the status of the claim over to the contractor and the insured 
uh, waives the pol- the privacy rights. <clears throat> excuse me, and so the the contractor can then have this direct line of communication with the insurance company because the contractor then becomes the claimant. The contractor becomes uh, the insured. <clears throat> but if the contractor has failed to put the insurance company on notice of the assignment of benefits, then it doesn't do any good. I've handled a number of cases recently where the insurance company sent the money to the policyholder who skipped with the cash. We were able to get the insurance company to pay twice on those claims because they were put on notice of the assignment of benefits. That should be done formally with a letter where it's tendered, which is insurance vernacular for submitting a claim. You you tender the assignment over to the uh, insurance company because they have to be on notice of it. And the assignment of benefits should also include a provision that says that the policyholder is transferring the right to sue the insurance company for breach of contract, negligence, and insurance bad faith over to the contractor. It really puts the contractor uh, in the driver's seat there and has been a very effective way to help accelerate communications and, and collections. What about the, the consumer, Ed? I mean, would you let's, – let's turn this around a little bit. If you were representing a consumer in, in Florida for whatever reason or, or a state – California, uh, and and they were asked to sign an assignment of benefits. What what would they, what would you recommend they watch out for? Well, um, you know, the assignment of benefits should not be broader uh, than the scope of services that uh, the contractor is providing. It should go without saying that when this assignment is made. Uh, they're not transferring the right to collect, for example, additional living expenses or replacement cost uh, for personal property. Um, some consumers bristle at the idea of an assignment without realizing that just about every time they go into a doctor's office, they're mm-hmm. signing in an assignment of insurance policy benefits, giving the doctor the right to collect directly from the insurance company. It's actually uh, a very common part of a business in the United States. And, and I would not be concerned about it. I want uh, the contractor to work on uh, prosecuting that invoice uh, with my insurance company. And I would imagine in car repair is the same thing. I don't remember paying them. Uh... Yeah. Um, I don't know the answer to that, if they have an assignment or not. Okay. Um, You know, it it would be, I could see how they would want one, but even though you have an assignment of benefits, you also want to have a contract with your customer that allows you to collect from the customer because that's, you know, that's your your contractual right there. That's, That's very important. People get so wrapped up in the insurance side of it uh, that they they distract everyone away from the fact that the customer is making a financial obligation. If the insurance company doesn't pay and the contractor goes to collect directly from the customer over and over and over again, they say, I didn't hire you. They, they forget that they sign a contract. They were under stress because of the, the loss. 
um, mm-hmm. and they weren't expecting to uh, pay the contractor, particularly if the contractor has been referred by the insurance company. They call the insurance company, a contractor shows up. In their minds, the contractor is working for the insurance company. It goes back to what I said before. It's about communications and and accurately uh, controlling the expectations of the customer and, and really helping them understand what the process is and then following up with a letter or an email to remind them, I am working for you. I'm going to collaborate with your insurance company, but you're still responsible for this. Interesting. Cliff, did you have a follow-up on that? I, I did, just a little one, Joe. I would think that any state that has public adjusters operating in it is going to have an assignment of benefits uh, provision because that's right. how these guys get paid. And it yeah. seems that they don't have the collection issues that we have. But there was a really yeah. good comment by a listener, actually, that I'd like to read. It says that, The assignment's the only real security to provide service otherwise unsecured to an unknown consumer on an emergency basis. We don't know if they have the money equity other than the insurance contract. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've had lawyers challenge assignments of benefits on a whole bunch of different grounds. and, And sometimes they'll say, well, it's not supported by consideration. Consideration is a bargain for exchange. To get a contractual right, the law expects you to sacrifice something for it, for there to be an exchange there. And what I've written in my new supercharged assignment of benefits is something that that basically says that the, uh, the assignment is given in consideration for the contractor's agreement to perform services without the expectation of immediate payment from the customer. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we don't say this, but, but in essence, the contractor is extending credit terms over yeah. to the customer. All right, I'm going to do this work. And for a little while, for a short period of time, whatever, 15 days or whatever it is, uh, I'm not going to uh, uh, expect uh, uh, payment from you. Uh, if you don't have it and we're working on the, uh, the insurance claim. Excellent. Interesting. All right. We will be back. We have to stop and thank our sponsors with the restoration lawyer, Ed Cross in uh, about 90 seconds. IAQ radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the indoor air quality association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at healthyindoors.com. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers, feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Okay, we're back with Ed Cross. Ed, I, I've got a text question here. I want to, can you pull that over here where I can see it, John? Uh, from a listener, and it, it, it looks like an interesting one with respect to getting paid here. Um, let's see. 
these, okay, uh, how can a contractor best expedite payment releases when a third-party mortgage company is a party on a payment check from the insurance company? I would imagine that happens uh, fairly often. <laughs> You're a master of understatement, my friend. <laughs> yeah, it happens all the time. The uh, mortgage companies out there are holding billions of dollars of contractors' money and in a lot of instances are not in uh, any great hurry to uh, release it. Uh, I think it's important, number one, to uh, get what I call a mortgage information release signed at the outset, explaining to the customer that uh, in all likelihood, if it's a larger job, that um, their home loan documents uh, would uh, require uh, a payment to uh, name the uh, mortgage holder uh, on any insurance loss drafts uh, for that property. So we have them sign an authorization that allows the contractor to communicate directly with the, uh, the mortgage company, and that also includes uh, a release of privacy rights so you can check on the status of that. We, we strongly prefer, of course, to have the contractor named as a joint payee uh, on the check. And if we have a good relationship with the customer, which is the overarching point I want to leave everybody with today, maintain good relationships with your customers, even if it requires a little bit of sacrifice along the way, um, so that when the check comes in, they will notify the contractor of it and the insured uh, should endorse the check and hand it over to the contractor. But a lot of contractors make mistakes because they call the mortgage holder and the mortgage holder says, endorse it and send the check to us. And they do it. And the contractor has lost a lot of control there. He who holds the cash holds the power, right? So mm -hmm. what do we do? I send a nice friendly letter to the um, mortgage company, first off, notifying them of the loss because a lot of times their collateral has been damaged and they don't even know it, uh, letting them know that there are insurance proceeds and I send them a photocopy of the check together with a contract that says that if, uh, if we send them the check, they will immediately endorse it and send it back to us. And if they refuse to sign that contract, we do not send them the check, and we have the right to go to court to get a court order for the mortgage company to sign the check. And what a lot of uh, mortgage companies fail to understand is that the law in a number of states, including California, gives a contractor superior rights over the rights of the mortgage company for those particular funds. And this has been the law in California for decades, and a lot of people who are in the mortgage and home loan industry don't know anything about this. And so the simple concept is that if the contractor has provided services and substantially completed the work and insurance proceeds have been paid, it would be manifestly unfair to allow a mortgage company to keep the money and the work. That's like a double recovery for them. Mm -hmm. A lot of these mortgage documents say that 
the mortgage company is allowed to withhold those funds if the mortgage is in arrears. What they don't know, many of them, is that the California courts have said, no, it doesn't matter if the mortgage is in arrears because the right of the contractor trumps the right of the mortgage company to those particular funds. Because again, the contractor has improved the collateral, in most cases bringing it to a superior condition than what it was in um, before the loss. And you can't let the mortgage company keep the money for that. So we lay out the law, we give them the citations to those particular authorities with a photocopy of the check. And we've had great success with that. They've signed it and we've turned around that money pretty fast. And if you've got a mechanics lien, and you have a signed certificate of satisfaction, that really helps to expedite the process because the mortgage company is really motivated to have any encumbrances removed from the title for its collateral. Interesting. Interesting. Cliff, do you have any follow-up on that? I don't. I thought it was well done. All right. Let me – I want to jump to another interesting topic here. We had – the restoration rebels on last week and it was, it was a fun show. And um, you know, they've got a big group on Facebook, probably 2,500 people that um, you know, they've, they've got a little network essentially. I, I, I don't know the proper term for it. It's not like a not for profit or anything like that. It's a network of people on Facebook. And, and they were talking a little bit about, you know, bad reviews and online reviews. And then I saw something else after the show that made me, you know, it was a legal case somewhere about um, a contractor getting a bad review and then, you know, suing the person that, that gave them the bad review when, they, you know, they were able to show that, you know, this person was uh, probably not doing so in the best faith. What what kind of recourse does a contractor have? If you get a, if you go online and, and somebody starts to rip you about whatever, how do you, what do you recommend people do? Um, when that type of situation comes up? There have been some lawsuits for defamation over uh, bad Yelp reviews, for example. Uh, Defamation claims are actually a little bit more difficult to prove than most people realize. Uh, One of the big problems uh, with pursuing a defamation claim is that when something is presented as an opinion, it's not considered defamatory. When something is presented as a fact, when it is actually false, and that statement uh, causes some damage or is the type of statement that would harm someone's reputation, then in theory, there would be a right to sue for defamation there. Uh, But, you know, one argument is that by nature, a review site such as Yelp is opinion. And in the United States, we have this wonderful thing called the First Amendment freedom of speech, and it provides a lot of protection uh, for people to talk. And, um, you know, I have seen some contractors get hurt because people will create fake Yelp identities in order to put uh, disparaging reviews about people up there. And so you don't know who to go after. You know, as a practical matter, prosecuting a case like that is very expensive. And, you know, determining what your damages are uh, is something that is 
very, very speculative. You need to go into court with some convincing evidence, some sort of meaningful calculation as to what your uh, monetary harm is, unless it's the kind of case that's called defamation per se, which is uh, a certain category of accusations made against someone, for example, that they've engaged in, uh, in criminal behavior. Okay, that's something where damages might be presumed, but there's even exceptions to that if the person is a public figure, for example. So, you know, defamation cases are not easy. And at the end of the day, what do you really have from it other than a big bill uh, from your lawyer? I have some clients who have successfully negotiated uh, the removal or the, uh, the alteration of a negative review. So Mrs. Jones is unhappy with her cabinets. Maybe you can call Mrs. Jones and do something to, to broker a deal with her so she'll turn her one-star review into a five-star review if that's the only thing she was unhappy about. And I have a client who just did this recently. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion out there online about how to uh, remove these negative reviews. And, uh, but there's a lot of protection that they have because of the First Amendment. I think uh, it can be unwise to threaten companies like Yelp or Google with legal action and that you're going to take them to court. They live in court. They're giant companies. <laughs> I also think that uh, retaliation is not a good idea. It's likely to get uh, the company in even more trouble. You don't want to get into a flame war uh, with these people, and you certainly don't want to track them down on other social media and and um, you know breathe new life into it and extend the drama. I've seen some comments uh, from some businesses that are very unemotional, very uh, factual statements that are made as a polite and respectful rebuttal. And I think done properly, uh, that can help. But, but sometimes it can, uh, it can reinvigorate a war, which you want to avoid. So I wish I had a great uh, solution for the bad uh, review problem, uh, but I don't. I just hope that the review sites, particularly Yelp, uh, will get a lot more aggressive about uh, filtering out the fake accounts. And somebody gets unhappy and they get aggressive, they might create five fake identities and put up five fake reviews over one thing. I mean, it, you, you get a mountain out of a molehill when that happens. Sure. That's an interesting topic there. Cliff, do you have a follow-up? Yeah, I, I do, Joe. I have some experience with it. Uh, you know, kind of before Yelp and, and Google, we had a situation where a product we made was used by a contractor, uh, you know, on, on, a, on an insurance claim. And supposedly the policyholder, you know, got sick and the goldfish turned into nitrogenous ooze and the kids got cancer. I mean, it went crazy. And she claimed to have lost, uh, she claimed to have been pregnant and, and had a miscarriage in a McDonald's. And unfortunately, when she got off the toilet, the toilet flushed itself and the evidence went down the drain. I mean, it was absolutely crazy. And um, naturally, we reacted to it because, number one, we were involved in a product liability litigation with her. Uh, and secondly, uh, we had the claim. And what happened was we sued her for libel, slander, defamation, and, and so on and so forth. And we actually won the case. And I actually got money. But I didn't get a lot of money. 
you know, I ended <laughs> up I, I ended up getting three thousand dollars, and uh, because and the reason I got the three thousand dollars, which came nowhere near covering my legal fees, but the reason that I only got that money is as Ed touched upon, I was not able to prove that I had a financial loss. Mm-hmm. My business actually increased during that period of time rather than decreasing. And the reason it increased is, you know, we were working harder at it. You know, I had no idea who would spit. I had no idea what effect it would have on our business. You know, so we were even more helpful to people. So, but it was uh, a crazy, crazy experience. It was a Pyrrhic victory. Pardon me? It was a Pyrrhic victory. You won the battle but lost the war. Well, I was, you know, the thing was, uh, I would have uh, taken her to the ends of the earth. I mean, it was, (laughs) I mean, it it was, it just was, I mean, she was just absolutely crazy. I mean, the stuff that she would put on the internet would read like a Stephen King novel. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Well, I I got another text question from a listener and I'm going to kind of, I think we answered it, but I want to uh, change it around a little bit. He was asking, you know, if you have, uh, contract documents for other states besides, you know, California and, and Florida. And, and I, I think you do, but um, my question is how much different do they have to be uh, on a state by state basis? Well, um, some states, particularly the ones who are more uh, consumer friendly, you know, like uh, California and, uh, Hawaii, for example, have some fairly uh, involved consumer protection statutes. A lot of contractors make a big mistake by just pulling some generic forms down off the internet and they get in big trouble for doing that. And in some states, it's actually a crime, uh, particularly for uh, residential projects. Okay. A bunch of states have requirements that you state the um, the exact price in dollars and cents um, as a lump sum. In other words, time and materials contracts are illegal in California for residential work. I've said it many times before, um, and I'll keep on saying it. You have to disclose reliability, insurance, uh, carriers, contact information. Um, you have to uh, state a completion date. And just about every state, has a specific disclosure requirement for the contractor's mechanics lien laws. And a lot of times, these disclosures have to come verbatim right out of a statute. It's vitally important that a contractor has the the contract reviewed by a lawyer who's licensed in that jurisdiction. Most states, for example, have a right of rescission where a consumer can cancel a contract within three days. The right of rescission has to be disclosed following a specific statutory disclosure. And if it's wrong, there's a violation and the contractor's license could be in jeopardy and the contractor may end up working for free because the customer could have rights to cancel the contract and make a claim uh, that, that no compensation is due or at least that the contract price goes out the window and, and is unenforceable. I think you understand this this kind of comment question that I got from uh, one of the restoration rebels. They wanted to talk a little bit about uh, tortious interference by carriers. And I probably mangled the word tortious again, uh, but can can we talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. Um, there is a tort claim that can be made in civil court called tortious interference with contract. All right. And that's when someone uh, negligently or intentionally damages someone else's contractual or business relationships and that damage causes some harm. Um, I have not seen this litigated. I haven't seen lawsuits actually filed for this, but uh, if an insurance adjuster were to come out and do what they frequently do and tell the uh, customer that the contractor that they've hired uh, has prices that are too high or does work that's not good or whatever, and they encourage that owner to basically breach a contract with the contractor, then the contractor could have a right to sue that insurance company or perhaps a consultant or, you know, uh, an industrial hygienist, if you will, uh, for interference with contractual relations. All right. If, uh, if I have a contract, right, that's an asset that I own. And if somebody comes in and, uh, and damages that, um, then, you know, they have some potential liability exposure for that. There is natural apprehension about suing insurance companies. They have virtually unlimited resources. They uh, are not shy about litigation, and they fight cases very, very hard in most instances. And I think that's one of the big reasons uh, why we don't uh, see these sorts of uh, lawsuits filed. I, I see threats made. So, you know, the contractor will tell the adjuster, hold on a second, you're interfering with my contract. You're not allowed to do that. And, you know, the big point we need to stay focused on is the adjuster actually has a very, very limited set of rights. The, the adjuster is just there to determine how much money the insurance company is going to pay, all right, and figure out in that adjuster's view what the usual and customary cost is for that particular job. The adjuster cannot, must not, shall not control the project, control the contracting process, or, or intermeddle in the contractor's relationship with the customer. Hmm. Does that also hold after the fact? So say your invoice goes to someone else for review. Right. So the reviewer, let's say, contacts the insured and says, uh, your contractor um, charged too much and you shouldn't pay this. All right. If you can show that that's been done uh, wrongfully and the adjuster is interfering with the contract rights. In theory, there's a right to sue the insurance company for tortious interference with contractual relations. Interesting. I've got one more, and, and we're running low on time here, Ed. So oh, I'm gonna, no. <laughs> we're going to round it up. Uh, Cliff, I was going to ask the question that was texted in. Do you have one for a final thought for Ed? No, no, let's use the text one. That's fine. Okay, so it says here that uh, my state, Thanks, John. If my state requires a three-day right of rescission, how does that? How do I protect myself on an emergency water mitigation? That's a tough one. There, you know, you've got three days. 
uh, you're into it, and you're, you're almost done with the job by the time they, uh, you know, this is over, this three-day right of rescission. Ed? Yeah. In California, and I suspect in most states, there is a procedure to allow a waiver of the right to cancel. And the procedure needs to be followed correctly according to the statute. In California, the law says you have a right to cancel these contracts uh, within three days unless the work is urgent, there is an emergency situation, the circumstances of the emergency are described in writing by the customer, the right of rescission is disclosed in writing to the customer, and the customer then waives the right to cancel because of the emergency circumstances and does it in writing, acknowledging receipt of the notice of the right. So I know I have the right to cancel this, but I really want you to start the work right now, and I know you don't want to start the work if I'm going to let you work for three days and then cancel and then try to get out of paying entirely. So, um, but, but the, the big mistake a lot of restorers make is they, they incorrectly presume that there is no right of rescission if it is an emergency. That's wrong. The right of rescission is always there, but if there is an emergency, the customer can waive that right if it's done knowingly and done in writing following the procedure set out in the statute. And I've got two quick, one's a quick one. Do you have the waiver in your contract documents yes. about adjuster control? Yes, is the answer. And the last one I've got. Adjuster control? I'm sorry. Um, about the, the right of rescission. Controlling. So it goes back to the statement about the adjuster cannot, must not control a, or direct a project. Yeah, that's not something we put into a contract because that's between the contractor and the insurance company. Our contracts don't, don't deal with that, uh, that side of the, uh, the relationship. Um, but if, uh, if an adjuster is getting involved, acting like a project superintendent, then they're liable just like a contractor. Something goes wrong on the job and the contractor faced with that should contact a lawyer to send a letter to the insurance company to say, back off, you're overstepping. Just adjust the claim. You deal with numbers. Let us do the job. I, I think that's a great way to, to end this one, Ed. I, I love it. Um, although I do want to ask, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add? I, I want to thank you again for joining us. This is always so much fun having you on here. That's, that's very kind of you. Uh, I think most legal problems can be prevented in the restoration industry with good communications, good documentation, and good follow-through. The customer relationships are even more important than good quality workmanship. If you do a really good job, but you haven't adequately explained and displayed that to the customer, the customer may not understand. Things can go sideways and uh, collection problems uh, can result from it. Be a good active listener and develop a relationship of trust with the customer, and you should be able to avoid a lot of legal problems. 
Ed Cross, the restoration lawyer. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's it's always a pleasure to have you on. And uh, people can learn more at edcross.com. You must have gotten that one pretty early on in the Internet world, huh? I did. Long time ago. <laughs> Once again, thanks so much for joining us. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Ed Cross. John, you got to have faith at the controls. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. We will be on a little uh, Memorial Day break next week. No show next week, but we will be back in two weeks. And we've just got a a bang-up lineup set up already for June. I've got uh, a tremendous lineup of guests. So we will be back in two weeks live with the next broadcast of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.